Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. This story was shared by my neighbor, a member of my ward, David Waite. David Waite is a descendant of the Huntington family, William and Zina Huntington, through their son, Oliver Boardman Huntington. He shared the following with me. I'm not sure the exact year that this took place. I need to do a little bit more digging to find out, but it was in November of the year, and I believe it was near Waterton, New York, where this actually occurred. William and Zina Huntington were at home late one November night, and after they had finished eating their dinner, the family all gathered around the big fireplace just off of the kitchen And they took out their musical instruments, and they began to play their musical instruments, old familiar tunes and hymns. Well, they didn't dance. They just played this beautiful music. There was William and Zina, father and mother, and then there were five sons and two daughters. Well, it was a happy New England family and they lived a clean, pure life of Puritan stock. Well, after the music ceased, a hush sort of settled on the family, and then there came a knock at the door. When they opened up the door, there stood, and I'm quoting, a strange old gentleman of medium weight, dressed in old-fashioned clothes and carrying a bundle on his arm. He stepped into the room, and said, quote, I usually bend my steps to some sequestered veil. May I find lodging here tonight? Well, with a cordial welcome, the stranger was invited in and given a place by the fire. And then the family asked, would you like some supper? And he said that he would. So they fed him a good old-fashioned New England dinner. And everyone spoke softly as the stranger ate. Well, by this time, I'm assuming that it's approaching bedtime. And so Father Huntington called everyone, and they began to read the scriptures, you know, family devotional before going to bed. They read from the New Testament and portions of the gospel, the teachings of the Savior. When Mother Huntington, I would assume that's who said it, made the comment, that, oh, how she wished she could hear the Savior's teachings in their fullness and purity as he would have taught them. At that point, the stranger spoke up, and he began to open up the scriptures and quote the sayings of the Lord in what seemed to be a remarkable way. He opened the scriptures to their view, new perspectives, casting new light and greater beauty than the Huntington family had ever imagined. The family sat in rapt attention 
listening to every word. Everybody agreed with what he was saying. It just, it seemed so right, so true. And the children sat there with reverence and awe and listened to the stranger open the scriptures. Well, they knelt for prayer and the family went to bed. Mother and Father Huntington discussed the remarkable teachings of this mysterious stranger. Well, the following morning, the life of a farm family, they rose early and they fixed a breakfast. The stranger was still there and he joined in, not saying anything. And then they asked him if he would like to stay and he said, no, I have other places to visit. I must go. So with that, the stranger opened the front door and stepped out on the stoop to leave, closing the door behind him. Father Huntington said to his son, Dimmick, wait a minute, make sure you go tell him that he can come back any time. Dimmick ran to the door, pulled the door open. This is just like moments or a second or two after the stranger had gone through, opened the door. And the stranger was gone. The whole family gathered at the door. The stranger was not there. Then they looked down. And in the fresh fallen snow on the doorstep, there were no footprints. The Huntington family cherishes that story down to the present day in their history. They considered it a miracle but there's a rest of the story. In 1832-33, the Huntington family was baptized as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They sold out their property and moved to Kirtland, Ohio, where they met the prophet Joseph Smith. One day, William was in a meeting with the prophet Joseph, where Joseph was explaining the doctrine of translated beings, particularly of the three Nephites mentioned in the Book of Mormon. When Father Huntington took occasion to tell Joseph of his experience some years before, whereupon the prophet Joseph laid his hand on William Huntington's head and said, My dear brother, that man was one of the three Nephites who came to prepare you for the restoration of the gospel and its acceptance. Another story, I hope you don't mind. A young mother lay deathly ill with a burning fever, which had begun as a heavy cold that turned into a severe cough and progressed to the point where her life was in danger. Every exertion was made to save her life, the doctors ministered the best they could, but finally they said, it's tuberculosis, we can't save you, you're going to die. She lay there in her bed, so sick and unable to move. She grew so weak and so delicate that even the slightest sound in the room was painful to her. In this agonizing condition, staring death in the face, she began to think about her own death. Was she ready to die? The answer was no. 
I don't want to die. She did not know, she said, the ways of Christ, and she said there seemed to be a dark and lonesome chasm between her and the Almighty. It was while she lay there, pondering upon these things, that her husband came into the room and began to weep. Oh, my wife, my wife, he cried. You must die. The doctors have all given you up and all say you cannot live. End of quote. Her husband left the room and darkness settled upon the room. And as it did, this tender young mother raised her voice to heaven and began to pray, to beg, and to plead that she might be allowed to live and bring up her children and be a comfort to her husband. All through the night, her mind moved between heaven and earth. At one point, she contemplated heaven and heavenly things, and then she would return to earth and those she loved, her babes and her companion. Somewhere during that difficult night, a peace came upon her and a resolution. She entered into a covenant with the Almighty that if he would let her live, she would serve him to the best of her abilities and would bring up her children in light and truth. And then there came a voice in her soul that said, Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. Let your heart be comforted. You believe in God, believe also in me. Moments later, the morning come, her mother entered the room and exclaimed, You are better! To which she found the strength to speak for the first time in days, and she said, Yes, mother, the Lord will let me live if I am faithful to the promise which I made to him to be a comfort to my mother, my husband, and my children. From that point on, she grew stronger. But her soul was troubled. Ever after that, she sought the truth, but could find no one who with authority could teach her the ways of life and salvation. Yet, though she could not find the truth to settle upon, with a steel determination, she kept her promise to God and her family. And not only did she keep that covenant to the end of her days, but she raised an exceptional family, a family that would change the world. The year was 1802. The place was Randolph, Vermont, and the tender, ailing young mother was Lucy Max Smith. I suppose sometimes we wonder if heaven notices our efforts, especially when we're shut in like we are and we're trying to minister and trying to love others, and how far can you go and how much can you really do? Well, the year was 1871, and, and I tell you this story because I think most of you are familiar with this story. 1871, in the tiny little farming community of Spring Valley, Nevada, 
Joseph Millet lived there with his family and survived by building fence, raising hay, trading horses, doing odd jobs. One day, his children came home and informed him that a neighbor, Newton Hall, was out of bread, that his family had none. Joseph proceeded, as a good minister would, to divide out a portion of his family's flour to give to Newton Hall. But just then, Newton Hall walked in. Brother Hall, are you out of flour? Millet said. Brother Millet, we have none, came the reply. Well, Brother Hall, there is some in that sack. I have divided it and was going to send it to you. Your children told mine that you were out. At this, Newton Hall began to cry. He said he had tried others, but he couldn't get any. He described how in desperation he had finally gone off into the cedars, into the trees, to be alone and pray and pour out his heart. And as he did so, the Lord told him to go to Joseph Millet. Brother Millet was touched by that, and he said, Well, Brother Hall, you needn't bring this back. If the Lord sent you for it, you don't owe me for it. That night, in his diary, Joseph Millet wrote the following, quote, You can't tell me how good it made me feel to know that the Lord knew there was such a person as Joseph Millet, end of quote. I wonder if the next time an angel of mercy is needed in my neighborhood or yours, could the Almighty send them to me? I hope so. Now, that is such a wonderful story that the church made a movie about it. But there's more to the story. Fast forward 30 years and go to Washington, Utah. Joseph Millet, now a much older man, experienced a dream. And in that dream, he found himself at his own funeral, looking down. He described how loathsome it was to look upon his body in the casket. And then he said, as he looked about the room, he was disappointed to see that there were so few people in attendance at his funeral. That really bothered him. And then, as you know can happen in a dream, the scene changed. Still his funeral. But now, there was a multitude of people. And he heard one of them say, he, meaning Brother Millet, he baptized me with six others at Gabarus Bay on the island of Cape Breton. Another one said, he brought the gospel to us in Musquodoboit in Nova Scotia. And another said, he baptized me and seven others in the Merrimack River in Lowell, Massachusetts. And on and on it went, people speaking up, lauding the life's deeds of Joseph Millet. And even Newton Hall was there, singing the praises of Joseph Millet for that act in 1871. And then another voice spoke. And from the way it's written in his diary, it would seem that this voice 
spoke with a power and authority unmistakable. And the voice said, I know him and shall speak for him. That voice was Brigham Young. And then Brother Joseph Millet suddenly realized that in his vision, there were very few in mortal attendance at the funeral. But there was a multitude in attendance on the other side of the veil, praising and remembering the deeds of Joseph Millet's life. And these people were not mourning. They were rejoicing, as was Brother Millet. Joseph Millet passed away October 11, 1911, in Cedar City, Utah, having lived a life of charity. I just want you to know that sometimes people on this side of the veil don't really recognize the good deeds you do, but everything's noticed on the other side. The Lord keeps track. Now, this whole account is about the march of Zion's camp in 1834, a story which I'll talk about later. Dennis and I love the story so much that we, with others, Matthew Godfrey and some people from the Joseph Smith Papers, wrote a book about Zion's camp. It's a remarkable story of faith, sacrifice, and heroism that so many members of the church don't know anything about. One of those on the march of Zion's camp in 1834 was a young fellow by the name of Jedediah Morgan Grant. Brother Grant traveled with the camp. Now, I don't know what state this occurred in on the march. I'm not sure. But somewhere on that march, Jedediah moved away from the main body of the camp out into the forest to hunt game. Well, it wasn't long before he had gone 10 or 11 miles and suddenly realized he had moved away from a moving body of men and then had no idea where they'd gone. Which way do I go? I'm moving. They're moving. Ooh, how do I find my way back? He said, quote, I entirely lost the track. And having no compass, I knew not towards what point I should travel. He said, I kept traveling on till the after part of the day. I then concluded I would pray, but I could not get any impression where the camp was. What would you do? Quit praying? Start crying? Well, Brother Grant persisted in prayer. He kept going. And soon, the Spirit of the Lord gave him an impression. And with that, Jedediah opened his eyes, and there before him was the camp moving in regular order. He said, quote, I could see it just as clear as I did in the morning. There were the people, the wagons and horses, all in their places and I, as I had left them in the forepart of the day. And I supposed, he said, that they were not more than 80 rods off, end of quote. But at that moment, Jedediah looked away from the camp. And when he looked back in the same direction, the camp was gone. It was not there. What to do now? Jedediah rose from his knees and from his prayer. 
and decided to travel in the direction he had seen the camp. And after traveling and after covering a distance of about eight to 10 miles, he came upon them. And when he walked into the camp, they looked exactly as he had experienced them and seen them in vision. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.